We just spent some time talking with Connor McCannabis, talking about the legalization four years ago and what's transpired in the uh, cannabis world. But as we recall, as the government was getting ready to announce uh, the decriminalization uh, of marijuana, there was those critics that thought uh, we were going to see all kinds of craziness, whether it was uh, an increase in crime, uh, whether it was more uh, impaired drivers on the road. Uh, Let's see what has happened in the last four years. Uh, What have the legal repercussions been? Uh, Joining us on the line is uh, Kyla Lee, criminal defense lawyer and impaired driving uh, attorney with the Acumen Law in Vancouver. Uh, Kyla, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, I recall four years ago seems like yesterday, even though earlier in the show I thought it was six years ago, but that goes to show you that, as I said, I might have spent too much time at the art gallery today. Um, I'm just curious. There were so many critics about what we were going to see if if legalization came and it was going to be chaos. And what has happened? Well, the sky hasn't fallen. Um, What we've seen is a little bit of an easing of some of the burden on our courts. Um, So there's been a positive effect because we don't see as many people charged with cannabis-related offenses, um, offenses for trafficking cannabis. The people who were running um, uh, supplies to dispensaries aren't being caught uh, on the way there because now they can legally grow and provide uh, dispensaries with their products. So, I mean, that's, that's all been quite positive. As far as the you know, predicted increase in impaired driving, we also really haven't seen much of that either. There have been some reports of increases of uh, cannabis use behind the wheel, um, but we haven't seen a lot of convictions or charges, at least not that much more than we saw prior to legalization. How And that's an interesting question. How, how do they check? Uh, like, I've been stopped at a... I don't know what they call them out here in Vancouver. As a kid, it was spot check or road check or ride. I think in Ontario, they call it ride. Like, I've been pulled over holiday season and, you know, uh, they can give you the test before they let you move on. Um, what, what do they do for if they suspect cannabis? So if they suspect cannabis, they have two things that they can do. Um, the first is that the police can demand that you perform something called the standardized field sobriety test. And this is something that most people would you know, recognize if they saw it. It's walking the line and uh, following the object with your eyes and standing on one leg. The other thing that police officers can do is they can also make you participate uh, in something called a saliva test, which takes a sample of your saliva. It analyzes it very similar to the way that a pregnancy test or a COVID test is done. And then it looks for the presence of a certain threshold concentration of THC in your saliva sample. Okay, I've never seen that one done at a... uh... Well, I haven't been stopped in a long time, but still, I've never seen <laughs> I've never seen that one uh, that one done. How how fast is that? How reliable is that? Uh, it is not fast. Um, the process of collecting the sample is anywhere between one and three minutes, and then the analysis of the sample is anywhere between eight and ten minutes. So, a lot of police forces really haven't been doing it because it's not that convenient a tool to use. Um, As well with the pandemic, nobody's really been comfortable with the idea of swabbing around inside somebody else's mouth and handling a stick that's covered in (laughs) COVID germs. (laughs) Right, right. Uh, Okay, so and and then uh, just as far as because we know uh, from uh, all medical studies that it it stays in your system for quite some time. But I guess, as you said, it, it must be based on, I guess, when it's newer in your system, or it's in your system earlier, it's a higher concentrate. 
Well, this is the problem with the saliva testing. So it can't distinguish between what is an underlying blood THC concentration and what's recent uh, concentrations of THC that's in your saliva as a result of recently smoking or recently eating a cannabis product. And the manufacturers warn uh, that there can be false readings caused as a result of that. Um, the police have some training on that, but there's not much methodology used by them to sort of attempt to find out when somebody had last had a cannabis product in their mouth and then delay the test to accommodate for it. So there are real dangers of false positive readings in those cases. And then, of course, the other situation, like you mentioned, is people who have large amounts of THC stored in their body where they're releasing that THC into their bloodstream um, by breaking down fat cells, they're susceptible to false readings that don't actually reflect impairment, but reflect just an underlying THC concentration that they have most of the time. Right. So uh, they have it in their system all the time. They're not buzzed as they're driving. At that moment, they're fine, but they could still test, uh, test positive. So has well, there... I mean, if you <laughs> if you ask the government scientists, they'll say that they uh, that they shouldn't be driving anyway. But right. a lot of, of researchers don't agree with that. So um, how, I'm just wondering about those going to court, those kind of cases where it is going okay. It, it's not 100 percent science; it's new science to begin with as well. Um, how, how, have we seen that play out in in, in a court? We have finally, you know, when when these laws were passed um, to correspond with the legalization of cannabis, we predicted a lot of constitutional challenges and then not a lot of them ended up being heard in part because we didn't see the massive increase of drug impaired driving that everybody was worried about. Um, So there wasn't a lot of opportunity for the courts to hear the cases. And the other reason was the pandemic kept a lot of the courts in Canada from operating at full capacity. And so a lot of challenges got waylaid. I was in Nova Scotia last week uh, running a challenge to the law that actually authorizes the police to do that roadside saliva test. Um, I'd filed that challenge in early 2019 and it just got heard last week. So you can see, yeah, (laughs) how much delay there was. Um, Obviously the judge is still considering everything and, and the decision hasn't been rendered. Last week as well, there was also a decision released from Ontario, uh, a man there um, who was alleged to have an elevated THC concentration above the legal limit um, and had been in an accident that resulted in a death, had challenged the the legal limit for THC, and he was unsuccessful in that challenge. So that law has now been upheld by at least one court in Canada. And, and I think everyone knows uh, the the limit when you're talking about alcohol, I think is 0.08. And I think it's been 0.08 for as, as long as uh, I can remember. Uh, and, I, and it's not like I've ever had a DUI, but I know because that's the number you know. Um, yeah. What about when it comes to THC? Is uh, what what What's that number? What is even the measuring well, there- tool? Yeah. <laughs> There are two legal limits for THC, um, and the different legal limits apply to the severity of of the offense. So you can be charged with a summary offense uh, for having 2.5 to 5 nanograms per milliliter, um, so less than milligrams per milliliter like with alcohol. It's 2.5 nanograms per milliliter um, for a summary offense, and if you're convicted of that, you get a six-month driving prohibition. If you have five nanograms and higher of THC in your bloodstream, then you can be convicted of a hybrid offense. So it could be either summary or indictable. Indictable is considered to be more serious. And the minimum driving prohibition is a year. 
Okay, so that's interesting. So saying all that, and with everything that was talked about as we got into legalization and going, this is what's going to happen, are you surprised at the way things have played out, at least from a, a, a legal aspect? Did you expect it to be like this, or, or how did anything surprise you? I mean, the biggest thing that surprised me is that we didn't see more challenges to the laws and that the courts haven't had more involvement in reviewing the constitutionality of of these laws. I thought that there would be people, especially medical users, um, who would be caught right away, who would be prosecuted, and that prosecutors would take a hard line to sort of set the example. But that hasn't been the case. So that surprised me pleasantly. But at the same time, also unpleasantly, because we also haven't seen the opportunity to really test whether these laws are valid. Um, that, I think that's the thing that surprised me the most. But when, when we talk about how we've always had the road, well, we always, but for as long as we can remember, we've had the roadside check for, for alcohol, for impaired driving. And there's been so many challenges to those over the years, and they still have those uh, ride checks are still out there. Isn't this just the next step, or is there something different about uh, when it comes to uh, marijuana and cannabis and THC as compared to alcohol? There's a lot different when you compare THC to alcohol. Um, The way that THC is absorbed and distributed in your body and the way that it eliminates from your bloodstream the length of the impairing effects, whether or not a person even is impaired by it at a particular blood drug concentration, all of those things, the science is not settled. And the science is generally more in favor of of the notion that people who use cannabis, particularly those who are used to using cannabis, are able to gauge their own impairment, able to make the decision not to drive, and able to, if they are driving, compensate for their impairment by going, I know I need a longer time to come to a stop, so I'm going to start stopping sooner. Um, I know that I'm, I'm you know, not capable of maintaining my lane position so well, so I'm going to drive slower. So we actually see compensatory behaviors, whereas if you get somebody drunk, they think they're a great driver right. and they drive terribly, <laughs> right? So, you know, it, it, the science isn't the same between the two things. And when it comes to testing for impairment, there is no sort of fast and reliable method for police to determine whether somebody is actually impaired by cannabis. The two tools that they use roadside, the saliva testing, says nothing about impairment. It just says whether your saliva has a particular amount of THC in it, which may not even mean that that's how much is in your bloodstream. And for the standardized field sobriety tests that we had even before legalization, all of the scientific studies that have been used to validate those have found that they are specific only to alcohol. So we're using an alcohol test to test for cannabis impairment. And one of the tests you would expect to see no clues if a person has cannabis in their body. So, you know, one of the three tests that doesn't even have anything to do with cannabis at all. Right. Yeah. That's <laughs> very strange. It's like they just took the, the one, uh, what is it, one size fits all and just moved it over going, okay, we do it for alcohol. We'll just do it for this. Well, and, you know, if you think about the people who are in support of the laws, um, but don't spend a lot of time thinking about the laws, the people who don't use a lot of cannabis, who aren't medical cannabis users, who were, you know, not using it because it was illegal and who may have tried it a few times since legalization, but it's not really for them. They're the people who aren't really concerned about this because they figure, you know, it's better to have the rules and it's better to make sure that fewer people are on the road if there's any potential that they pose a risk. Even though, and I think a lot of people don't realize this, 
it also creates a very real danger that innocent people could end up convicted of criminal offenses or innocent people could end up arrested subject to a full-scale police investigation only for hours after being dragged into a police station, a police officer to determine actually they aren't impaired. And you never get those hours of your life back. And I can tell you from dealing with every client that I've had that's been taken into a police station, nobody likes it. Uh, we continue our conversation with uh, Kyla Lee, a criminal defense lawyer and impaired driving lawyer with Acumen Law uh, in Vancouver. Uh, Kyla, you mentioned something just before the break. You know, no one likes being uh, taken into the uh, police station. Uh, you know, we... we the damage, as you say, it's not just, okay, it's uncomfortable and it might be embarrassing, but uh, talk about the issues that it does face, someone does face, when, again, they're brought in for something that really uh, could very well turn out to be nothing because the tests are, are not the most reliable. Once you're arrested for impaired driving um, in a drug case, so where they're thinking that you're impaired by cats, they're taking the police station and administers something called the drug recognition evaluation. And this is a 12 step test. And yes, 12 is not an accident. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a 12 step test that's designed um, supposedly to uh, allow a police officer to conclude whether or not you're impaired, whether the impairment is caused by a drug or a medical condition. And if it is by a drug, the class or category of drug that is the likely cause of impairment. And those tests are very invasive. They involve taking your pulse, your blood pressure, um, literally grabbing your body and squeezing it to check your muscle tone, um, having you stand on one foot, stand with your head tilted back. Uh, they take you into a dark room and they examine your eyes in a completely dark room. They make you do physical coordination tests. They interrogate you about your medical history. All of this reveals a lot of deeply personal information. And people come out of those tests feeling violated. They're asked to expose their skin to police officers so that police can look to see if they have injection sites. It's, it's not just a matter of being brought into a police station, booked in, and then released a few hours later. It's brought into a police station, physically manhandled for about an hour, and then maybe released if the police officer comes to the conclusion that you're not impaired. There's so many parts of that that, that make uh, me uncomfortable. The thought of them, you know, hugging me to see how my muscles are, like, uh, that to me seems that there, there's no way they should be able to do that, uh, regardless of the fact. That seems absolutely crazy. Uh, how often does those, do, do they run those 12 steps, those 12 tests? They are becoming more common. Um, and in part, that was because at the same time that legalization happened, we saw a massive increase in funding for officer training to conduct these tests. Prior to legalization, there were very few officers Canada who were actually trained on how to do these tests. So they were almost never used. But once legalization took place, the government gave the police millions of dollars to train up officers. So they were sending officers down to Florida where they did the training. Um, and, perfect. Uh, perfect. They, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, and then they would come back and they would train other officers in Canada. So now most police forces have several officers, sometimes the entire watch, um, are all trained how to administer these tests. Um, and so they are becoming more common because now more police officers are able to use them. I'm just wondering how reliable are those tests anyway? I have a hunch that my pulse and blood pressure would be through the roof if I was in the police station uh, being at, like, uh, even if I was, even I had nothing going on at all, I would be extremely nervous and I'm sure uh, I would look shifty and evasive for sure. 
Like you just feel nervous. Like it's hard not to be intimidated, even if you feel you did nothing wrong. Well, and the worst thing is on the sort of training that the officers receive, the clues that tell the drug recognition evaluator that a person is impaired by cannabis is that everything is normal, except their pulse rate is up and their blood pressure is up. The two things that you, using your common sense, say, I know are going to be up on me when all of this is going on. So you could take any average person and an officer may well come to the conclusion that they're impaired by cannabis simply as a result of their own nervousness because everything else the test is looking for is expected to be normal. I would think if they, you know, if someone comes in and the first thing they ask the officer is where the uh, vending machine is, I'd say that's a sign. That to me is more reliable of a test. Someone who's totally um, oblivious to what's going on in the situation and asks, you know, can I have change for, uh, you know, a Kit Kat? That to me would be more reliable of a sign than the 12 steps, the 12 uh, tests. There are technologies that are also being developed to look for more reliable signs. There's um, some apps out there that have uh, used sort of computer programming to measure your baseline reaction times and look for slowness in reaction time, responsiveness to prompts, things that you would expect to be consistent, you know, with somebody who is stoned, where they move slowly, they respond slowly. Um, But the police don't use those. No, of course not. Um, Kyla, thank you so much for your time tonight. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.